this is what a pulpit feels like. Hmm. It's been a while. We are in the book of Mark. I had to be reminded first service where we even were. No. We are in Mark chapter 4. We've been talking about the parables going back, again, three weeks to the last time uh, that I was here. The parables that we're looking at this morning follow a parable that Jesus told to the multitudes and then he left them hanging. And he was telling them the story of the sower. But again, he just tells it as it is and then he walks away to find more intimate environment alone with followers of his as well as the chosen twelve where he not only explains the meaning of the first parable to him, but now he's going to follow up with three new ones. The parable that we talked about last time we were together was the parable of what we usually call the parable of the sower. It's about the sower and it's about seeds and it's about soils. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to divorce that parable from the three that are now going to follow. I've explained the parable of the sower previously as a story that can be taken as, as one story but written on a coin with two different sides. On the first side of the coin, the soils are people in various places in their spiritual journey, but all of them pre-Jesus. It's a, a story or a parable of people on a journey, as we all are. And the Lord sees to it that each person is presented with the reality and is presented with the existence of God in many and varied ways. And depending on the particular soil of the individual souls, the seeds of salvation hope either get snatched away immediately or they begin to sprout, but since the soil is shallow, they die. Or the seeds sprout and they actually begin to take root a little bit and they grow some and they look like they might make it, but lo and behold, they also die out. Or finally, the last soil, which is fertile and it's healthy, and the seeds grow into a useful fruit-bearing plant. And we understand that only that last soil, which, re which relates to a person, has truly received the gift of eternal life. Once saved now, though, however, <laughs> you can flip that coin over. And now the soils of the same parable can be seen as the moment-by-moment -moment condition of every believer's heart when since that period of salvation are confronted by the Holy Spirit throughout their lives trying to conform us to being more and more like Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When each individual who wears the name of Jesus turns over the reins of his life to the Lordship of Christ... At that moment that we do that in genuineness and sincerity, we are 100% secured for all time and eternity. But none of us are 100% surrendered to the Lord. Which means when we are confronted by the Spirit of God, which again comes through varied means, 
but ultimately derives from God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative, inspired word, we may respond with various responses depending on the different soils at that moment in our lives. Relating it to the first soil of the parable, we might hear what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us, but frankly we just say, you know what, eh, nah, that doesn't fit with my plans. Or in the second soul for the believer, we might hear clearly what the Lord is pushing us or trying to show us, but we respond with, well, I'm too busy now, but okay, I'll, you know what, I'll get around to it when it's convenient. Or it could be the third soil. Right, got it, I heard you, I'm on it. And we even start, perhaps, with good intention. But then we get distracted, and it goes by the wayside. And then there's the fourth soil, where when confronted by the Holy Spirit, the believer says, okay, Lord, I got it, I heard it, I'm on it. And then the believer does exactly what he says, bringing blessing both to the individual as well as to the kingdom of God. So every believer's life is one of taking the seeds of God's word sown into our lives throughout our entire lives, responding with varying degrees of resistance or compliance. And where there is compliance, there is fruit to the glory of God. And at that point, we take another step up in becoming the mature Christian, becoming more and more like Jesus. Back in Mark 4.13, this goes back to previous material, Jesus said to the twelve, look, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand the others? Referring to the parables that we are now going to approach. So here we go with new material, beginning in verse 21, Mark 4. Jesus was saying to them, first of the new parables, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I'm going to tell you right up front that this parable is not as easy as the rest of the parables. It's not as straightforward as it might seem upon a casual reading. Part of the reason for that is that this parable in Mark is very, very similar to a parable that is presented to us by the gospel writers Luke and Matthew about a lampstand. And yet this parable, similar though it is, is significantly different as we're going to discover. Let's begin then, before we get into the minutia of the parable, let's begin with what we know. We know that the net result of anyone coming to Christ is more than just escaping the eternal torment of hellfire. That coming to Jesus means much more than just basically acquiring a fire insurance policy. The completed result of anyone who has genuinely come to Christ is to bear fruit and it's to reproduce other followers of Jesus. This parable now, though, as recorded by Mark, tends again to be viewed precisely the same 
as the similar parable presented by Matthew and Luke. They see it presented as basically a reprimand to the believer about not being timid about one's faith, about not being shy about your loyalty to Christ, about not shrinking back when facing worldly views of life and of heaven and of hell and God and morality and the current big one of the day, sexuality. We typically view this parable meaning God did not make anyone to be a closet Christian. So get out there and let your light shine. God never intended faith to be a private matter between one's self and one's God. He created every one of us and every believer that has ever come to him to be farmers, spiritual farmers, some sowing, some tilling, some watering, some being able to participate in reaping the harvest to the glory of God. All of which means this that the reality of a barren, that means non-productive Christ follower who is not growing, who is not producing, who is not multiplying, is a biblical unicorn. Unicorns don't exist. God never creates a follower of his to so-called give his life to Jesus, and then that's as far as it ever goes. So seeking solace and refuge in some strained notion of what some people call the backslidden Christian is unbiblical. Let me explain. Many of us know someone, or someones more than likely, who was the sweetest child who just loved coming to church. Many times, many Sundays, they were the motivation for the parents even coming to church because the little one wanted to go. They so loved being there, not just because of their friends, but they loved learning about God and talking about God. They prayed on their own for missionaries. They willingly tithed with such sincerity and innocence of their own meager allowances. They won the verse memorization contest. They jumped at the chance to pray at meals. But then something happened. They grew up. And things started to change. And in that metamorphosis between adolescence and adulthood, now they have little or no interest whatsoever in the Lord, and they'll even gladly tell you that. Now, before I go any further, I want to give an important axiom. Only the Lord knows each one's heart and state of their eternity. This will make sense as we go along. Only the Lord knows each individual's heart and the state of their eternity. So that's between God and that individual. We are not called, hear this clearly, we are not called to make the judgment of whether someone is truly saved or unsaved in such a condition. but neither are we to assume that they are saved, but just because there was a time when. 
Paul had to deal with such persons. He writes of one of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, the way that is typically understood is that Paul's talking about taking the recalcitrant so-called Christian and turning them out of the protections of the church and of fellowship and of, of fellow Christians and friendship and all of that while they remain in that state of rebellion. And if Satan takes their lives, well, then he takes them whether he knows it or not, he, they go off to heaven. But that is a misunderstanding of this passage. What Paul is saying is, and this turns on what is called an aorist subjunction, subjunctive, the verb form, which is a modal verb translated here, mighty or may. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, okay, meaning, okay that person was a Christian and a follower of Jesus, but now he's, he's backslidden, and so I'm turning him over to Satan, and if Satan wants to kill him, whatever, he can have at it, because that guy's just going home. It does not mean that. What it means is, I don't know if that guy is saved or not, but they are so belligerent and in such a state of rebellion that I will turn him out to Satan to have his way with him. And if he is saved, then great. If he suffers the ultimate, then he will go to heaven, meaning death. But it doesn't necessarily mean or automatically that he is saved. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking categorically about professing Christians professing Christians who are not living Christian lives. He writes to Titus about these kinds of people playing the game churchgoers to contextualize it for it for us. And he says in Titus 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul's practice and Paul's example is that we are, in fact, called to judge a person's actions. For we can clearly judge an action as being Christ-like or unchrist-like, if we know the Word of God. So we can say confidently, again, if we know the Word of God, I cannot say if this person is a Christian or not. That's between them and the Lord. But I can tell you this, they are not living like a Christ follower. And again, this is not referring to the Christian who stumbles and falls. We're not talking about sort of what is called a punctiliar, meaning a point here, a point there, a point there, and a point there. That's the way we generally live our lives, right? You know, three steps forward, two steps back, but always moving forward. This is talking about the so-called professing Christian who just has come to this place or never got out of a place of arrested development and has never proceeded any further. It is a, a, an habitual lifestyle now that they are in. And even with them, we're still not to judge whether they're saved or unsaved. Only the Lord knows. But we jolly well better judge their lives. And if you know your Bible, again, you know that that is not being judgmental. It is, in fact, being godly. 
If we're not supposed to do this, then what in heaven's name does it mean when we are told in 2 Timothy 4 that I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to what? To reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. But then says how? Not arrogantly or obnoxiously, but with great patience and instruction. And why are we to do this? Because it's for their good. Because if we don't, the time will come when they, who, belligerent Christian posers, will not endure any longer sound doctrine. But instead, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own hard feelings and their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth. And they will turn aside to myths. Again, in Titus 2, 15, he writes, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Now, what are these things that Paul is referring to here? He tells us in verse 1. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, pointing out error in living biblically is not being judgmental, it is being obedient. So thinking of the chronically wayward individuals who at some point in time in some way made some kind of profession of faith as Christians, thinking of them as being just backslidden is inappropriate. There is a clear theme in Revelation called perseverance of the saints. It occurs elsewhere in the scriptures, but Revelation happened to come to mind. And it occurs at least seven times. Jesus prefacing words to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2 is, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And that you've endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. In Revelation 3, speaking to another church, Jesus says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Revelation 14, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. P is the final letter in the acronym TULIP, which came about as a result of Calvin's Five points of Calvinism. The P stands for perseverance of the saints. That the real believer is not the one who, quote, believed, but the one who believed, is believing, and shall continue to believe until the end. Back to the parable at hand. So is Mark's use of the parable of the lamp and the lampstand even about hiding one's faith? Warning. I just gave the classic interpretation of the parable of the lampstand. And as I mentioned, it's used by Matthew and Luke, albeit it's used by them in different contexts, and it is used with different grammar. Let's look at some of those differences. Mark uses the definite article with the word lamp, where Luke and Matthew do not. What's the definite article? In the English language, we have 
the word a or an, okay, like a banana or an apple. That's called the indefinite article. If I say, and there's several apples up on the counter, and I say, grab me an apple, it means I don't care which apple you you, you grab. It's indefinite. But grab an apple, but grab any one you want to. On the other hand, if I say, no, 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 grab me the apple, that's the definite article. It means now I am being specific. I don't want just any old apple. I want that apple in particular. Okay? I warned you. I'm not doing this for, for, for some kind of show or, or you know, to validate my tuition in seminary. I'm doing this to show you that if I don't do this, now what I am telling you is argument by assertion, which I loathe because it's the common form of argument today. Argument by assertion means it's true because I just said it's true. This comes from objective analysis of objective grammar and literature, which is true of all grammar and literature. All right, Matthew specifically says, you are a lamp. And he says, you, meaning believers, you are a lamp. And you are to let your light shine. It is clear that you and me are one of many lamps. Oh, there's a lamp, there's a lamp, and there's a lamp. There's the lamp. No, there's a lamp. The indefinite article. Luke writes, no one after lighting a lamp, indefinite article, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, unfortunately, at least in my translation in the NAS, which tends to be the most rigorously close to the original languages, which is why I go to the original languages, the translators translated Mark's telling of this parable with the indefinite article, meaning a lamp rather than the lamp. And Mark uses that definite article, which is a single letter in the Greek meaning not a lamp, but the lamp. Stay with me. Yawn if you must. I get it. Luke and Matthew, in addition to using the indefinite article, also use a different form of the verb than Mark uses. They use what is called a passive verb form, indicating that the action that's being done to a lamp is being done by an outside agency. In other words, in Matthew and Luke, the way they talk about the parable of a lampstand is that you are to take you, yourself, who are a lampstand, and you are to set yourself up for the world to see as a reflection of Jesus and all that that means. You are giving the action in the parable to the lampstand, hence the passive use of the verb. Mark doesn't do that. Mark, on the other hand, uses a verb form that means literally the lamp, not a lamp, the lamp does come. It's awkward to read it that way, which is why the translators, I'm sure, figured they would just smooth it out the way they did. But in this case, it makes a substantial difference. 
the lamp does come. Meaning, it's not in the passive form. Meaning that now the lamp comes of its own power. Which is weird for an inanimate object in a parable. But this lamp, the lamp, comes of its own authority, of its own initiative. The action that is is self-generated. Meaning what? John chapter 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light. I'm not just a light. I'm not a light along with Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I'm not a light with Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Gabriel or anybody else that you can think of. No, I am the light. And I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So on balance... It's reasonable, to say the least, that the lamp of Mark 4 is not a lamp of one's testimony of faith to which Matthew and Luke refer, but it rather is none other than the King, the Messiah, Emmanuel, the light of the world. This is the lamp of the presence of Christ who is coming again on his own authority, in his own uh, power, in his own initiative, at his timing, and he comes again, and when he does, the light will dispel the darkness. And when the lamp, who is now hidden, I mean now, right now at our time, in their day, and for all time until he returns again, the lamp who is now hidden, by that I mean he's hidden to at least certain ones, He will emerge from the darkness, from the shadows, from the hiddenness, from the shade in the second coming. And he, at that time, will be the lamp seen by all living life. And he will be seen profoundly, as we are told in Matthew 24, 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Three weeks ago, last time we were together, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 11 of Mark 4, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but for those who are outside, get everything in parables. But when the light of the world is revealed, which will be in the parousia, meaning the second coming, all will see him revealed unlike at the present time. You try to tell somebody about Jesus and they're like, huh? Or somebody tells you about their Jesus and you say, huh? doesn't bear any resemblance to the Jesus. But that day will be over at the second coming when all will know for what every tongue will confess and every single knee will bow. And so this is why Jesus exhorts in verse 23 of Mark 4, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. It is important for us us now to develop sensitive spiritual hearing to develop an acuity in spiritual perception that is biblically informed and interpreted and understood and applied 
And in Mark 24a, Jesus was saying to them, so take care what you listen to. Now this means listening to, not just, and the noise kind of comes and goes. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. It was, I don't know. It was just noise. Listening biblically assumes two things. It assumes sincere ingestion of one, information, and of two, action that is based on that information. If you are listening to spiritual rubbish and you are acting on what you are listening to, you are acting on bad information and the results can only be bad. Jesus says it a little different way later in Mark, but he says here in verse 24b, by your standard of measure, this is why you're to become astute listeners, because by your standard of measure it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Oh, prosperity preachers love to absolutely corrupt and distort this passage to be referring to being entrusted with material things. It's got nothing to do with it. We have to resist the urge to rip the parable out of the immediate context. This is both a thoughtful conclusion to the previous parables about the sower, and it's also an introduction to the next set of parables. So when God speaks to you in your life, you have to listen thoughtfully and act accordingly. It reminds me of what I see playing out for us by the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans, which tells us that God gives clear revelation to everyone that comes into the world. And with whatever that piece of revelation is, every individual hearer either responds to it the way God would desire, or they corrupt that piece of information, of revelation that God has given, twisting it to fit their own purposes, or they just ignore it outright. The person who hears, who's listening biblically to what the Lord reveals and acts positively, obediently to it, the Lord sees to it then that more revelation, more understanding of him and his ways and his purposes are given. There is so much junk out there in the name of Christ. We know that. And some of it is even, and this is the worst kind, you know, the, the really blatant, obvious stuff. It's like, oh, brother, really? But the most pernicious kind, the most lethal, is that that takes a good bunch of Scripture and even talks about it maybe in spite of themselves accurately and then lets it flow into the, their point or their pet passage which takes another piece of Scripture and just turns it on its head so that now the person listening is so confused because they're going like, you know, they, I mean, our, our church is, I mean, he's got the Bible, he's preaching the Bible, but ah, 
Ah, there's something he just doesn't see. Become astute listeners and hearers. And Jesus promises that if our ears are open, he will make sure that we understand. And where he makes sure that we understand, you will bring circumstances and situations and people and circumstances and situations into our lives to move us to that point of action. We have two more parables yet to go. Lord willing, we'll get to those next week. Let me have Paul come on up and close our time in prayer. Let's stand. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, reading the scriptures is like digging for gold. And I think today we found a nugget of gold in your word, Lord. Uh, the truth of your word that really helps us to understand who you are. And it also points out the need for us to uh, not just read the word, but to be students of your word, Lord. So we just thank you for the, uh, the nugget of gold that we heard today, Lord. And I just thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.